Hi, I'm Alex Palmer, and welcome to another episode of the Cycling Business Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by former Garmin, BMC, and Trek Pro Tour rider Pete Stetner to talk about his recent transition from Pro Tour to Gravel Privateer. We talk in depth about the state of the booming US gravel race scene and how Pete successfully switched from the Pro Tour to building his own privateer gravel program. This is a fascinating insight into what it takes to strike out on your own as a gravel pro, building a commercially viable setup from scratch without the support of a pro team. Making things even more challenging, Pete achieved all of this during COVID and has still gone on to dominate the US gravel scene so far this season. So let's get to the podcast. Okay, Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to reconnect after a decade. After a, after a very long time. Yeah, I guess we, we can go into like how, how, how our paths crossed 10 years ago. Um, I guess, so I was going to try and catch you after you were at one of our local big time gravel races a few weeks back, but you were so fast, you disappeared by the time I finished the race. Um, but we managed to, to connect afterwards on email and here we are. Um, what do you think of the gravel hugger? It was the uh, the first event to get the green light in 2021. Uh, yeah. They had a, a COVID policy that got the okay, um, and I could drive there from home in my, my big dumb van. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry I missed you. Uh, there was no finish line beer. And I, no, I was like, I oh. <laughs> he said, there's no party, like just, just buzz away. <laughs> so, I mean, no, Ben was a great, great organizer. I'm so happy that I got to do a local thing. Just amazing views everywhere. A little bit ridiculous weather, but uh, that's, that's early season gravel for you. Yeah. How was well, your day out there? Um, it was pretty good. I mean, I, I, I knew what I was in for because I'd ridden, I'd ridden the race last year and then I'd, okay. I'd, I'd pre-ridden, um, you know, sections of that course just in training and stuff. And so I knew what to expect and I knew what that ridiculous Jeep track was like which was you know like the muddiest cyclocross course ever with mud up to your bottom bracket but i think for us like in southern oregon it was great to see an event like that just get some traction and they kind of struck gold because they were the first event that could get out the door probably because the the, the restrictions are really lax up here you know but yeah you, yeah you, yeah you for take what you can get better or worse they they're more relaxed up in the uh the state of jefferson if you will but um yeah it was it was really cool and there was so many people who were okay to do an outdoors only event you know uh ben was pretty cautious and pretty safe about you know his his mask mandates when you weren't actually effectively moving on the bike um and it was really cool to experience like a a, a northwest a, a west coast regional strong field if you will you know it was kind of like this blend of like the NorCal scene where I am in like this, the Sacramento Bay area. And then also a bunch of you guys from like the Pacific Northwest, like a bunch yeah. of Ben folks came in and it was kind of like this, this little melting pot, uh, with Mount Shasta looking over us. Yeah. Do you think, it, um, seeing an event like that, you sort of run off successfully in COVID that gives you some confidence for the rest of the season. And you might actually have a proper gravel season this year, as opposed to last year. I am very optimistic about this year. Uh, Things look very, very busy this summer. Um, I, you know, Belgian Waffle Ride happened in Utah last fall, and that was an 800-person event with zero reported cases coming out of the event. And the actual act of bike riding, from everything I can tell, from talking with as many experts as I can, is safe. Like, when, once you're moving in that air dispersion, like, yeah. someone would effectively have to hawk a loogie in your mouth, right, to get it. Like, yeah. it's... <laughs> so the actual act of bike riding is pretty safe. Um, and you even see that in the Tour de France when it didn't pass from team to team and from spectators who were not being that respectful, yelling at teams. It was only spreading within the team hotel or the team bus. Um, so so bike riding is generally a safe thing. And, and now, you know, vaccinations are are really kicking off if, if you're into that sort of thing. I personally am vaccinated now. Um, yeah, and I Awesome. And, you know, it's, I think I also feel like that's the, uh, that was always kind of the end goal, right? Like, I mean, if the, if you can't, uh, if, if this fails, I, and this is a deeper economical and political conversation, but like, I don't really know like what the plan B is. Like, I just don't think 
bike racing aside, I don't know if society will put down with another year of lockdowns for, for what, like, you know, it's just, it's, if, if the vaccines don't work, then I think it's just going to be, you have to pretend like this thing is the flu or the common cold and deal with it. You know, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, d- I don't think anybody knows. I mean, it's, it's, Again, when you talk about economics and, and economics in the bike industry as well, it's crazy, right? So right. My, like my my day job is running an e-commerce business that sells a ton of Chris King and White Industries and stuff like that. It's Ooh. just gone bonkers since COVID started. But then we're all sitting here thinking, like, how long is this going to last? Like, it's great right now. Is it going to tank? Like, what's going to happen to all these bike shops that have just, just been like ordering, uh, ordering and ordering and ordering massive amounts oh, of yeah. bikes and stock and... Uh, you know, fingers crossed it, it continues, but I think it's got to level off at some point. I hope, um, I hope it doesn't. Um, you know, I hope everybody who found the bike during the pandemic continues to, to ride yep. and we break away from, from, uh, a niche sport in the eyes of some to more mainstream. I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe the next American Tour de France champ champ found a, found a bike during the pandemic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's all good. Um, so you're, I mean, I guess you're not seeing gravel, like it's just going from strength to strength and it kind of, um, justifies your decision to switch to that. Right. Uh, this was the best call looking back that I had ever made. Um, yeah. it was did, definitely a, uh, sorry, go ahead. Did, did you have your doubts? Cause obviously oh, you yeah. made the call, you started out on this road and then COVID hit. Right? Uh, yeah. You know, but. It was, yeah, the initial call was, it was like jumping off a cliff, you know, just the, into the, into the deep end and hoping that there's no rocks underneath the water, you know? Um, and, and it paid off and, and it was so much work. Um, I mean, just bike riding aside, just pulling, you know, 7am to 8pm days for, for months. It's like starting your own business, but yeah, it was my business and it was my passions and my relationships and you it's yeah. So it didn't really feel like work, even though it was stressful days. Um, and then the pandemic obviously, and it was tough to kind of reinvent myself twice within a few months, just because the, the pandemic, you know, I kind of banked on, you know, I'm, I'm here to race Scrabble. I still care about racing. I want to have fun with the community. I want to embrace the broader cycling community, but like, these are bike races. We have a number on our back. Like don't, kid yourself like i mean people want to hit out um and to have that taken away and try to it was almost more of a i felt uh i was endeared to my sponsors and i still had to give them some sort of a roi for believing yeah. in me yeah. i almost felt guilty i didn't want to just sit on my ass and, and wait this thing out so so that was really my main inspiration from last year and trying to create some alternative projects but you know the silver lining was um I, I got to explore even more beyond yeah. just traditional road racing. And it, I think it also proved that this little privateer hustle of these individual racers, you, when you're a lot smaller and a more nimble business, you can kind of jump and pivot a lot faster, right? Like if you looked at what I did and what a pro tour team did during the pandemic, well, I hosted a Zwift series. So did they, I, did FKT promo videos. You know, they had a lifestyle video. Like I did a virtual climbing challenge on Strava for a charity. So like they don't, there's, there wasn't really a big difference. Yeah. And except maybe, except maybe I think when you said you mentioned ROI for your sponsors, I don't, again, going back to when I was at slipstream kind of, Mm -hmm. um, and I was the guy who was, responsible for getting the ROI for the sponsors. I don't know whether the riders have much of a much visibility on what was going on with that. Or if if you didn't even, you didn't have to think about that because somebody else was responsible for getting the ROI for the sponsors to make sure that they renewed. And so I guess that's, you know, that's an aspect of like the business of this that you've had to get your head around. Right. Totally. Um, Um, Yeah. You know, and it was, you know, with, without the Tour de France, it just kind of showed like the pro teams don't really have a plan B. Um, and luckily, yeah. I'm so happy the tour went off, like just in terms of the sport. Um, and, and it was the, uh, all of us being able to watch it and, and yeah. escape. But, you know, it is that's actually been almost 
more fun than the whole actual act of riding gravel is the the business of cycling and uh, thinking about your brand and how you align and what you stand for um, and supporting things that you do care about. Um, yeah. And has, how, how hard has that been to transition from being a sort of, you know, uh, in the bubble of pro tour where all you have to do is show up at the hotel and ride your bike versus, yeah, like you said, you're literally setting up your own business and you've got to go out and find the sponsors and the money. And I, I'm, I'm curious, I, I mean, you don't have to share numbers, but like, right. how, do, how do the economics stack up, um, on all of that? Um, and, yeah, and- um, it's, I, I knew nothing starting this last, you know, in the end of 2019. <laughs> like I, I did, I had no idea. I knew like what I had been paid in the pro tour and I, I knew the minimum I had to make to pay my mortgage and not have a side job at yeah. a brewery or something like that. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> so that was like, there was like that bottom line, right? Like I, I, to make this legitimate and professional, I need to make this much money. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I treated it kind of like a, a stock portfolio where it's like, you know, instead of just going to one sponsor and being like, Hey, I need X amount to survive. You know, I, I diversified and I thought, okay, you know, what can I, uh, how many companies can I represent, you know, and if they can all give me, you know, a couple thousand here and a couple thousand there, uh, maybe some bigger headliners, but if that all comes together without stretching me too thin across too many, cause then you also just look like, a sellout and washed you, up. You look like a you look like a, a Conti <laughs> Italian pro Conti team, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so so it's a balance, you know. Um, and so you really have to think about who you align with, and then you have to have that hard conversation of, um, you know, I'd always had an agent do it for me on yeah. in the pro tour teams, um, but I was doing it myself now, and it was you know, Hey, like, I love your product. I, I believe in it. Uh, or they come to you and they say, we like your story of going to gravel and it'd be like, great. You know, like some free parts are, are nice, but you know, I trying to make a, a go at this to make a living. Like, yeah. um, there has to be a financial component to yeah. really incentivize I, yeah, that was, me. That was, the, that was a question I had is obviously brands get a lot of people coming to them and asking for products and, and you, you've got to get beyond that so that they're not just giving you products and you want to be a paid ambassador for these, um, yeah. for these brands. Um, so have you, have you literally d- done all of the business side of things yourself or do you, do you have some help from other people? Like how does that, how does that work um, out? I, I have done it all myself, uh, just because, and I'm still very close with my agent. Um, yeah. and they have, you know, they, they looked over a few of their early ones, just at the actual contract and just to make sure like, I wasn't getting hoodwinked in some fine print. Um, but if you, if you think of how the traditional cycling agent works, it's really, you know, they, they shop a rider out to quick step or EF or whoever the big team. And okay. It's like, this is your one or two year deal, like one big salary. It's just one contract, one pace, you know, one pay stub. Um, yeah, because then, then you're not with your pro your pro team contract. You're not allowed to go out and and do side deals in most cases. I think most pro teams yeah. have got it locked down really hard. Maybe once um, in a while, if it's very like non endemic, you know, yeah. out of the cycling industry, but it's hard. Um, so I and it's really it's honestly it's easy work for the agent, and they're really good at that. You know, they have every team manager's number on speed dial, mm-hmm. and it, you know they just take their you know usually seven ish percent of the rider's salary and all good you know for for what i'm doing it's actually it's it's a lot more sweat equity for an agent because basically he would have to do that same conversation with in my case nine sponsors yeah who you know and that that's it's a lot more work for like a lot smaller pieces of pie instead of the whole pie so um I did yeah. it all myself. But also once, you know, you, once you've learned to do it once, I mean, that's a great skill to have, right? And, and the, you know, for however long you continue doing this, you know how to do it now. And I think it's also really important that when you, you know, you're talking to a brand in a far more authentic way and it's like a direct, you know, brand to athlete conversation instead of having an agent buffer in the middle, um, right? That's been um, a very big part of what I'm trying to do is I don't just want to, 
It's more real and credible, right? I, yeah, and I don't. I want to be able to talk about it. And if I endorse something, I want to have a reason and a story. And I want to work on, you know, for example, with IRC tires. Like I'm, we have created a mountain bike tire together that I just did the Coca Pelli and the White Rim yeah. uh, FKT attempts on, and like it's a direct relationship and feedback, and and it's so much more uh, validating and enjoyable than just you know, an, an impersonal relationship. So yeah. I actually like owning it all. Yeah. Do, like the do, whole you, think, do you think we're going to get to the point? I mean, as gravel um, keeps, keeps growing and the economics of it keep growing, are we going to get to the point where there are, you know, gravel teams and, and contracted, you know, pros racing gravel, whether they're from the, uh, you know, maybe not from the pro tour, but dedicated gravel teams. I, I think so. I think it's coming. I mean, I think there already are quote unquote gravel teams at the, uh, the more, uh, local strong level. You know, I think there was yeah. that Pana racer team that was always at a bunch of the, the Midwestern races. Um, it's there. Um, I don't really know. I think for example, like Payson's orange seal team, you know, it's, there's three of them. Um, you know, him, Hannah Finchamp, um, another rider and, it's they have their own sponsors and they are quote unquote a gravel team um it's just it looks a little different and i think it'll be really interesting to see where that goes you know i don't think there's anything wrong with having a team and supporting riders to get to these events um but i just hope it doesn't become and i don't think anyone wants it just to just become road racing off-road because that'll kind of just ruin the whole ethos of what everyone's trying to build yeah it kind of it touches on that sort of um you know your whole hashtag about Pete Ruin gravel and and <laughs> and and maybe the the, the 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 resentment from the old gravel community towards you guys coming in. I mean, it, right? There, there's obviously something in that. Maybe it's not that big of a deal, but clearly people people are maybe not. You know, they're not super stoked at first, but then they get used to it, right? Yeah, you know, that's a, it. Was very tongue in cheek, sarcastic hashtag but you know especially at at unbound or formerly dk 2019 now unbound uh mm -hmm. you know the year that colin strickland beat myself and Lockie and alex the two ef riders um everyone was super scared the the pro tour riders are coming to unbound they're gonna ruin gravel they're gonna show up in their team buses with their massage therapists and you know their high-end tech and um the poor EF boys, they raced in baggy jerseys for 10 hours. I feel so bad for them. I still had a kid on, but, um, that was, it couldn't have been farther from the truth. And then we were, you know, a third of the way into the race and these guys are hitting us and we're like, Oh, it's on. Like, no, this is a race. This isn't like a fun grinding ride. Um, I had a ham and cheese sandwich pack that I like couldn't finish because like I'm, it was too slow in the aid stations and all that. Like it was, so it was, it's much more of a tongue in cheek as like, you know, I saw this moment as like, I'm happier here. I want to do this. Yes. I'm a pro. I'm unapologetically a pro. I want to race, but I want to have fun. And you know what? I'll be your scapegoat. Like, yeah, I'm ruining it. I'm, I'm a fast guy who wants to focus on gravel. Like, yeah, too bad. Um, and, and, you know, it's just kind of, it's a little bit that mentality of like, I saw the band before the band got really big. Like right. So then, so then, if all these all these pros do turn up with their team buses, you you can be one of the you know the guy who's like, yeah. like yeah. they're ruining gravel. I was here first, <laughs> <laughs> right? I was I was the first gravel pro. <laughs> you um do no. no clearly like your your sort of North American contemporaries. You know, if they're still in the pro tour, I'm sure you're still friends with people in the pro tour. They get yeah. it right they get yeah. they get what gravel's all about do the euros get it or are they just like what the hell is pete doing leaving trek segafredo and yeah. riding gravel races both it's, it's very mixed i mean and you know as well as anyone that yeah, it's just the european road scene is so traditional and so stuck in their ways um and i definitely i have colleagues who thinks it's badass and they are kind of watching me with a curious eye and they're checking in with me. Um, I still have quite a few friends in the world tour, but then, you know, there's a couple, uh, you know, you know, a couple, uh, very traditional teammates. That's like, 
oh, if you're not racing in the world tour, if you even if you're on a continental level, like you're not a pro. Like that's that's unprofessional. Like Pete's retired and just mailing it in, which whatever, you know, that's that's their mindset. Um, my my personal angle is, you know, if if you're getting paid to race your bike or ride a bike like that's professional, that's your profession, right? Like yeah. that's the basic idea. And it doesn't like and that's, you know, it's okay, you can talk about racing categories and all that. But you know, we're all just trying to get paid to do bikes, you are running an e commerce site around bikes, uh, you know, a journalist at Velo News is getting paid to write about bikes, like that's yeah. just the end goal, right? Um, I'm racing fast. I, and I have the power numbers from world tour still in. December. Well, that's okay. That was my next question is how do the numbers stack <laughs> uh, up? Right. And right. and I'm curious, like, first of all, from the training side of things, how different is your training now to how it was when you were a, a, a pro tour rider? And then secondly, like the numbers in racing, like can, you can obviously make a direct correlation with mm-hmm. how hard is a, is Belgian waffle ride compared to a, you know, a one day classic, for example. Um, it's very hard and very different. Basically it's, they call it gravel grinding for a reason. Um, I have slowly had to change my body from more of, uh, you know, kind of following in the Peloton all day and these high, high power spikes, right? This high octane covering attacks, making attacks on mountains, buffering lactate super fast to now it's much more of like just turbo diesel, right? Like I could actually like my five hour power is much better than it used to be a five hour time trial. Right. Um, and there's spikes within that to like try to break the race, but I think it looks the most like imagine a breakaway in road racing, right? Like you, you know, you make that selection, but then you're just, you're turning and it's very much attrition based and there has to be attacks in the end of that. But, um, so uh, that's definitely kind of where my body's moved um a bit more all day diesel a little less has come off the top end unfortunately but um it's still very much elite sport um you know i I was hitting numbers and race weight from every other year last year that's that's interesting to compare it to um you know pro tour breakaways and think what breakaway specialists might do we better like hope a, thomas like again, a thomas again. That, was, that he, was the one i was just gonna mention yeah if he comes to unbound we're all we're all fucked i'm sorry or, um, <laughs> or do you remember do you remember jackie durand back in the day oh, that was before my time i mean yeah, i know yeah, the okay. name but yeah yeah <laughs> he was like a crazy french breakaway specialist oh yeah um yeah. although i don't know if those guys can do the heat and, and the, the other thing too is like it's you know six to 10 hours are these races. So it's, it's a much longer type of effort, which you don't really prepare for, you know, the world tour is four and five hour stages. So, um, just a few nuances on, on the, on the flip side, then I I'm curious how, how good is Colin Strickland? Because there was that whole sort of episode with, you know, is JV going to offer him a contract to go race the classics? And then he would have had to have ditched all his personal sponsors to go do it. And, I mean, I, t- I kind of understand why he didn't, but like, how, what, how do you think he would have done if he, if he'd gone and done that? I think Colin made the perfect move for him. Um, yeah. I've gotten to know Colin very well over the year. We've done a couple little fun things together. Um, one of the most genuine, amazing people I know. And he is first of all, an amazing human specimen that was built to ride a bike. He just didn't find the world tour angle early on, but, um, the, the capacity that that guy has is scary. Like, and, uh, sometimes the things that the things I've seen him do in group rides is jaw dropping. So, um, he's got a big old star on his back now for <laughs> unbound next this year. Um, and, but Colin is, he's, he's a thinker. He's a tinkerer. He's marches to the beat of his own drum. As if you, anyone who follows him on social media, he's out there instead of training, he's soldering parts of his truck together. Um, he, I don't think he would have done well in the world tour just be, and I think he'll be the first one to tell you that. Like, I don't think he wants to fit into anyone's mold. Like he's, he's very much a creature of motivation. And when he's in a good headspace and happy, mm-hmm. he is almost unstoppable. But when he's down and he's just kind of pessimistic on things, he's just like, 
what the hell's the point, you know? So, um, yeah, I think he's in a very good spot for him where he can unapologetically be himself. Yeah. That, um, that's interesting. You talk about the sort of the, the pro tour kind of molding you into a box sort of thing. Um, how, I guess, how hard is that to, to deal with? Because I think you see it with certain riders where they get to the point where it's just not a good fit anymore and they're tired of being told what to do all the time. And the really, the talented ones, I guess, like Lachlan and co can, has, they've managed to sort of negotiate a, a sort of middle ground where they go yeah. race pro tour and then they can go and do a few of these other things so that they're not, you know, in this maybe kind of oppressive environment all yeah. of the time. Um, how, how do you deal with that? I mean, how does, what does that do to your head? I mean, obviously I, I didn't because I left, um, <laughs> you know, I, I played in that box for a decade and probably when you knew me, I was probably just this selfish punk ass 21 year old or 23 year old who was just like, I just had the laser focus. Like I want to do the tour de France. I want to yeah. make ends in, and that was it. And, and I respect anyone dealing with that monk lifestyle and trying to make it on the big stage right now because it's a hard lifestyle but you know i've had enough things happen in my life and done the game for long enough that there's so much more out there and i was happier in other realms um and even locky i think he still pushes back on this stuff i think it's you have to have some sponsors that really go to bat for you to the mm-hmm. teams um yeah. you know i think rafa is a big part of the the ef alternative calendar is what they call it right um yeah and they've really championed that and and batted for it. And then I think now with the rise of social media being so encompassing and so important, um, it, you, it doesn't really serve to just be a, a cut and dry racer anymore. I mean, people are held to a different standard. And I think sponsors want more than just... Uh, a race result and i mean teams have known that for a long time i mean well, yeah i mean teams uh, teams have but a lot of teams haven't grasped it right and if you look at i think the the ef example is a great one because the value that the sponsors like rafa and everybody gets from lachlan and co going and doing their crazy adventures and getting a ton of traction on youtube versus him you know i don't know racing the Tour de Suisse or whatever and yeah. like maybe coming top 10 on a stage like the, or even you know at his peak winning a, tour, winning a stage of the Tour of Utah I mean yeah. the, the, the value of it, I don't, it there's no comparison right he's getting way more value with what he's doing outside yeah. of Pro Tour than, than, than inside yeah and you know that's something that I went against is you know I was told how, how big winning the Belgian Waffle Ride was in 2019 it was one of you know, the, the most important boost marketing boost, social angles that Trek racing received all year. However, you know, um, my team manager's eyes, I was just, uh, a beer drinking gravel rider who was not invested in racing on the road. So, so so did they, uh, did, did they then, did they choose not to renew your contract at at the end of that year? They weren't, they didn't want to play anymore. So you had, so, so you, you, you rode, Belgium, you, you dabbled in a few of these gravel races. You win yeah. Belgian Waffle Ride. Waffle Ride. Yes. Trek are saying, this is awesome, Pete. We've got the biggest spike in, you know, whatever, interest, brand yeah. recognition, whatever. And then the team cut you at the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Is, um, is, is that just a disconnect between, you know, Trek USA and Euro team management that don't get gravel? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, you'd have to ask someone inside there. I had a couple people confide in me certain angles. um, And, you know, I still have a lot of friends at Trek and I wish them nothing but the best. But it was obvious that uh, some of the the Trek racing management themselves don't really, they just view gravel as something they're kind of having to put up with at the moment. Um, Yeah. And, and so it kind of became, okay, Trek doesn't, and, and I was smitten with it. I was like, I, I want to do this. This makes sense. You know, I want to race on the road still, but I also want to, want to do gravel in the U S like on the side. Um, and a lot of European teams just weren't into that. So it became a decision time for me, like, okay, do I promise, you know, and, and have my manager be like, no, no, Pete's going to live in Europe and just do 
road racing or are you just gonna go off and, and do this other thing which is i chose the latter and now i'm very glad i did you know um but yeah that was a, an unfortunate way to to have to find it but also the best thing that again has happened in my career and sometimes you kind of need to be pushed into the unknown right exactly yeah um i'm i'm curious going going back to this sort of like pro tour environment which to me you know i spent two years working at slipstream i didn't travel to many races at all right i i, I was relatively lucky that i got to stay home a lot of the time and i probably you know i was on the road maybe like 60 days a year something like that it, yeah. from what i saw it is fucking brutal right <laughs> and, and, and yeah. I, I had a yeah. i had a pretty cushy job right as far as team staff go i would look at what the mechanics and the swannies were doing it is they just you know it's literally a 24-hour commitment seven days a week when they're on the road they get no yep. time to themselves they're staying in you know a different hotel every night and okay, I look at the riders, they're a lot more pampered, right? Yes. Because obviously the team are there to serve the riders to make them do well in races. But even from a rider perspective, it's still a very, very harsh lifestyle to be, you know, racing your bike that hard. You get on the team bus, you eat, you go to the hotel, you stay in a hotel in a, you know, probably a shitty hotel with a shitty bed, right? Yeah. And then you just rinse and repeat the next day. And I don't know, how do you, how do you deal with that? mentally do the team help you with that do the team pay any attention to riders kind of like well-being other than their physical well-being do you think i don't think the sport is there yet i think it's still a hard man's sport and you know it's just shut up and pedal for yeah. the majority of these teams unfortunately um you know speaking of all of this and, and fitting in the box you know one thing that happened there was a kind of another point I think that, you know, I started to divide me with the world tour was, um, in 2017, I started my own grand fondo around Lake Tahoe where I uh, live part-time. Um, and it was a way to give back, you know, my, my dad has a brain injury. Um, his recovery hasn't gone great just due to the nature of his injury. So, you know, it hurt our family and tore a lot of us apart. Um, and, in a way to give back to other families or others that maybe could use help, I created this Grand Fondo uh, supporting the High Fives Foundation. And that was, a, honestly, it was also selfishly a, a project out of a little bit of boredom. I was just like, this is a way to give back. And I have so much hotel time mm -hmm. uh, just with my feet up, like instead of cruising social media, like I want to do some of these deals, like, you know, promote this event, try to get this thing off the ground. Um, and come renewal time, when I was renewing with my team, uh, they said, okay, but we don't want to see anything about grand fondos and custom beers and all that. Like that's project for retired riders. And that was just, a, I was wow. like, wait, I'm doing charity work. Like I'm, it's just in a hotel. I'm not missing races. And yeah. Um, and that was another big disconnect. So that was, I think that was even before gravel kind of the start of that me not quite fitting in in that box anymore i mean maybe maybe uh, i don't know teams teams are probably of the attitude that you know does does catering to riders mental well-being as as well as their physical well-being does it have a significant impact on performance or not or is it just a case of you got to just put up and shut up and you know be hard and and that's just the nature of the sport right that's the nature of the sport it's ingrained you know it's a very blue collar sport from you know uh kids getting off the farm in in europe and stuff yeah. you know and and honestly there are a lot of those kids who are happy to do that and i was happy to do that for the first few years of my career is just, you know, you, you have to even make it, you have to have that laser focus where, you know, your body and your, you know, in a, in a positive light, your selfishness as, a, a, as an athlete is paramount, right? You need to have that desire because honestly, if you don't, then, you know, others, someone else does. Um, and, you know, I, I, maybe I probably could have been a bit better of a, pro bike racer if i was more selfish in this the second half of my career you know i don't know but that wasn't on off obviously who i am um and i'm not even trying to sound i know it sounds so negative because the term selfish has such a negative connotation but 
I also respect the dedication and the monk life that you need to have to make it because everyone else is playing that game and your bodily perfection is the end pursuit. So who, who did you see during your career? Who, who does it really well? Like who, who is able to kind of, you know, manage that monk life and kind of be balanced and not obsessed and, 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 you know, sort of be, be, be more grounded. Like, is there anybody that manages to just check all the boxes and you look at them and just like, how, how are you doing that? Yeah. Like, you know, um, <laughs> an old example was, uh, Levi Lifeheimer was a very big, uh, uh, figure in, in my young career. Cause we lived in the same town. So he yeah. taught me a lot of training tricks and he was the guy where he was so dedicated and just so in the zone, uh, three, you know, 24, seven, 365. Whereas, you know, other guys could go train with Levi for two or three week training camp and get this massive boot. Like, but it was like, oh my gosh, like that was intense, you know, and Levi just lived it. So, you know, that's, that's one example, a guy who's really balancing it now, I think well is, um, Tao, Gail Gagan. Yeah. Um, he's, you, you know, you see that there's personality behind that. Um, you know, he's got, you know, he's standing up for the things he believes in. You can see that he's a, a thinker and a, a, a deeper person beyond just a bike rider. Yeah, it was always funny when you'd hear some of the stories about the older pros who would be able to combine going out and partying hard. And, it's and a you know, sport I, 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 heard, I heard stories of, of maybe some of the older guys at Slipstream going out <laughs> and getting shit faced the night before the Champs Elysees stage and, and yeah. barfing on. <laughs> There's so many stories. The the sport has changed so much uh, from when I was a Neo Pro to when I exited the the Pro Tour. And it was uh, at the beginning, yeah, it was parties and uh, hazing the the rookie riders at the team camp early on. And, you know, um, yeah. And and I was kind of in that middle zone, you know, me and my buddies, like we, you know, you, you want to have a couple beers after the week long stage race finishes, you know, like, you know, you might wake up with a little bit of a headache, but you know, it's, you know, the job well done. Like you got a couple beers with your buddies. Um, and by the time I exited, even that was weird. You know, I, I remember as this young rider at Trek, right. As I, um, in my last season there, and he was like, you know, Oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have a glass of wine with Christmas dinner. And uh, you're just like, <laughs> okay. Um, that's dedication that I don't have. <laughs> so what, what, what do you think, what do you think changed? Is it like more data and just everything is more trackable and quantifiable or, I, or yeah, is it- I just think marginal gains became a lifestyle instead yeah. of just the last 1% that you would do <laughs> for, uh, peaking for the race. It really became a somewhat like, like you said, you know, just, it goes back to the, the athlete lifestyle that someone else is wanting to do this and get every, do a little bit more than the, the last guy. Maybe that'll help them. And it just kind of perseverates and, and builds on itself. Yeah. Thanks. So. Thanks, Sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me not to eat my breakfast. And <laughs> um, I want to, I want to talk about, so I, I, I think I heard you on another podcast talking about this and it, and it just, to me, it seemed like a, a, a really prime example of some of the ridiculousness of pro cycling and, and, and the pressure that's involved. And you had this horrific injury in like yeah. 2015 in Tour of Basque yeah. Country, right? And I mean, you, you can tell us about how horrific the injury was, but hang on, what, what month was that? It was early in the season, right? April, Tour of the okay. Basque Country 2015, so early April. And then you were back racing at the end of that season in Utah, right? Yes. And you had to walk with a cane. Yes. But you were racing and that was because you needed a contract for ne- you were you were out of contract at the end of the year, right? Yes. Yeah. So I you know I mean I'd love to hear what was going through your head with that because it I mean that's that's an example of really when when pro cycling gets very tough from an economic standpoint and the things you have to put your body through, right? Yeah, you know, um it was my back was against the wall. Um, and it, I still had some of that, that selfish laser focus that we have been talking about. And it was just, you know, for anyone who wants to look up into my crash, it was well documented, but basically shattered my kneecap into oblivion, uh, 
tibial plateau fracture all the way down the leg, five ribs, LCL, a couple weeks in critical in the Spanish hospital. Um, had to relearn to walk. Um, mm-hmm. And if the, the injury did not go right and the bone did not heal correctly, we were talking amputation. So, um, wow. come out of surgery, the leg is a stiff board, right? There's all this structure holding the kneecap together. Like it just, it, it does not bend. It's a straight plank. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was on BMC at the time, very well-funded team. They have a very good medical team in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Eric Hyden out of Salt Lake City. Dr. Max Testa is also in Park City. I'm oh, sorry, both Park City. Mm-hmm. Um, and I basically was like, all right, you know, I'm still getting paid. Like, in, I'm still an athlete, except now my training is to get the use of my leg back because even if I can't continue to be a pro, I still want a functioning leg the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to use this excuse that this is my job. Um, and I did PT like training on my bike. I mean, five days a week at the office for a couple hours and then weekend exercises at home um, and couple surgeries bit by bit to take out metal as things were designated as fused. Um, and I wasn't able to bear weight for three months. So, and that whole time it was just trying to get enough bend in my knee and breaking down that scar tissue to the point where I could get over a pedal stroke and a, a full crank arm. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I had that, I was right around three months. I was allowed to start kind of weight bearing, relearning to walk and all that. Um, and, and tour Utah was starting a few weeks later. So I basically got on my bike for three weeks and started and finished the tour of Utah. Um, I still had quite a limp. Um, I still kind of needed a king to fully weight bear, but luckily cycling is not weight bearing. Yeah. And my other leg could kind of make up the difference. And tour of Utah was very luckily the, uh, a race at altitude, big wide roads where you could hide. So I could kind of, I could fake it pretty well too. Um, yeah. But that, that basically finishing the tour of Utah in that condition, uh, BMC was not ready to continue with me. They did not like, they, they just weren't interested, unfortunately, even though yeah. things had been promising before. So, um, Trek though, gave me a lifeline contract. They just said, you know what, if you can already finish this race, we think you can come back to your old level. So we'll give you a shot. So I had a a minimum Neo pro salary contract again in 2016 with Trek. Yeah. I had a nice comeback season. I raced the tour de France, I made the tour team and, um, and then I re-upped and had three more <clears throat> super fun years with them. Yeah. So they re- I mean, I, you know, we, you can say that, you know, we grew apart with gravel, but they also gave me that, that second wind in my career and gave me that lifeline when no one else would. Yeah. I guess you could look back on that experience. On the one hand, you could say it's absolutely ridiculous that you you came back and you did a race when you were walking with a cane and, and isn't pro cycling crazy for making you do something like that. But on the other hand, it, it got you back in the game and it made you rehab really, really hard, maybe harder than if you if you didn't have that, you know, that totally. goal of trying to do that race. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, as I said, my back was against the wall and I wasn't done with the sport yet. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you think the whole, um, you know, the whole contract negotiation side of things is, is very difficult within the sport and it's definitely not, um, what's the word? The balance of, the, of power is certainly not with the rider, right? It's really tough. Um, some guys are so chill about it. I'm jealous. Like, uh, Bauka Molama, one of my good best yeah. friends in the Peloton, we still talk all the time. Um, he's probably my favorite guy to ride for on any team, but he yeah. was just chill. Even if he didn't have a contract and teams were dragging him along, you know, and the agent was stressed, and he'd be like, "No, he'll he'll figure it out." Um, yeah. And I was so jealous of that mindset. I never liked the idea that a rider is kind of treated like a stock. Um, mm-hmm. You, you know, you want to you as a rider, you want to buy in high when you're, you know, you're on top and, and teams kind of want to wait until you have a bad result and they want to buy you cheap. Um, and, and they can love you all year. And Mm -hmm. 
And then the contract negotiations happen and you just hear from your agent that they're saying these, oh yeah, but Stetna was shit in this race and he got <laughs> dropped here when he was supposed to be there to help the leader. And, and it's like, wait, I had food poisoning at that. Like, that doesn't count. Like, and they're like, oh yeah, but that's, he had food poisoning because he was too stressed out and he was, you know, it, so they just, it, it, it really is impersonal and it's hard to take that. But then you realize like, oh, this is the game. You know, this is, it's impersonal. The team managers, the agents view it as like, we play these two cards and try to negotiate and haggle the price. But it, I struggled because it's like, well, yeah, but you're dealing with my entire career yeah. <laughs> is the price. So I personally didn't take it well. And I think that's part of the reason that I like doing all my own deals and gravel now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, we're definitely seeing more riders start to speak out about this sort of thing and, and, and start to speak out about, you know, um, challenges they might be going through and particularly, you know, riders that have had mental health issues, you know, like some really big name riders have spoken out about it, like Mark Cavendish and Taylor yeah. and Pete Kenno in the UK. And yeah. uh, do, do guys in the peloton talk about this thing or is it very much like, head down racing. I'm not going to show any weakness to these guys because I'm trying to beat them. No, uh, it, you don't really talk about it with, I mean, most of your teammates are really colleagues. Um, yeah. and there's a few close friends, you know, there's, there's guys that you always roommate with that you, I'm lucky to have a few friends who, you know, I could tell them shit that I didn't like within the team and they could confide in me and you knew it would never leave. And to have a teammate that is a friend first is yeah. so important, especially when you're on the road away from family all the time. Yeah, There's a few of those guys, but it's not like an open conversation, so to speak. Um, and I think that's when you see guys like Marcel reach out and say this. And there's a lot of pros that are like, yes, like that's I'm power to him for saying that. Um, yeah. 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 It's so. it's. I guess on the one hand, it's it's you don't think of it of it not being that kind of friendly, right? You think that guys, you know, you see like guys on the same team, and you think they're all going to be good mates. But then also, if you if you look into it, you, you go a level deeper. Your average Tour de France team is made up of multiple different nationalities, languages, a vast yeah. age range. Guys from you know maybe like twenty one through to like thirty six, thirty seven. It's not surprising they're not all best mates, really. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a, there's something powerful about a sport so hard. Like in the race, you come together. You know, it, it does bring you closer. But not all those friendships stay after the race. Some do. I mean, some you, you're just like we're tight for life. But um, yeah, you know, not all uh, your tour team of eight guys and that you you don't all stay tight. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you like have anything? Any, do you have any sort of like daily practices that you do to sort of you know keep you balanced and keep you keep you sort of healthy mentally um not consciously i definitely am a, a creature of habit when it comes to my morning routine yeah um, what does what, is, what is your morning routine look like <laughs> coffee immediately um yeah. but um you know even like just you know i wake up hungry and and i so even like a bowl of cereal as i'm making my coffee just like something tasty in the morning and you know getting dealing with the dogs our dogs the morning belongs to them but it's just the process of letting them out looking at them charge for squirrels and enjoying that and then you know feeding them and they are it's like a circus and um you know so i, I guess there is just things that i'm dealing with in the morning but i it's just part of like my my set every day um yeah yeah, I don't think there's any direct practices like before a race or anything that I'm like, it's not like I have mental mantras so yeah. much. What about, um, I mean, you, you alluded to it a little bit earlier with your, your, your dad's injury um, and the, the sort of impact that that's had on your family. Um, that's That sort of spurred you to, to start up this or to, to create this event around this foundation, right? Yeah, well, so I have my own gravel event it was a, um, a road fondo when I was in the world tour in the road. Um, and then I just kind of started exploring this cool area called the pine nut mountains on the, basically on the, the other slope from Lake Tahoe. And it's just, um, out of Carson city, Nevada. And it's just this unknown range that just, there's like not even Strava maps, right? It's just like packs of wild Mustangs and broken down cars and, to even find the route that went through, it was just like so many like calls for help. Um, 
So the, the course is amazing, but it all benefits the High Fives Foundation, which is a group uh, based out of Truckee, California, that uh, supports injured mountain athletes. So if you, you know, uh, for example, a guy who's broke his back skiing, you know, they, uh, they get him a sit ski, they help him rehab and learn how to use it so he can ski with his kids at you know, Olympic Valley again someday. They, they mm-hmm. get your life back on track, right? Because when you're an athlete and you have a life-altering injury, that's really hard because your identity is taken, right? Like, I mean, you, your whole life, whether it's bikes, skis, ATV, motocross, it doesn't matter, right? Like, if, if you can't do that anymore, mm-hmm. like, there's a whole host of other issues that come with that, you know, loss of meaning loss of personality loss of desire uh, alcoholism you know and and a whole you know so these these people are still athletes they just have to learn some new tricks and they're still part of our broader two-wheeled or outdoor-minded family um so so the high five foundation is our main beneficiary and i try to do a lot to to help them because i mean sorry when when's when's the event September 11th, if anyone, okay. in, you know, especially up in the Ashland area, it's a, yeah. a day drive. I would love to see you out there. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we can get some people down for it. It looks, looks good. Um, what, um, I'm, how long do you think you'll keep this going? Like you're in this privateer gravel kind of world now. Do you think, is it, has it got an end to it or you just keep doing it as long as you're having fun and you can, you know, make the numbers work economically? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I do have some other desires in life someday. You know, when I was laid up with my injury thinking if what's next, you know, I went as far as creating a business plan and yeah. what would be next. But can, can um, you, t- you're going to tell us what that is or I'm is that? my car close to my okay. chest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the, the, the hospitality industry, food, okay. wine, cool. beer. I love the, like, I love, I ride to eat half the time. Um, yeah. So, but everyone knows the, the restaurant industry, it's, more competitive than cycling. So I'm holding my cars close to my chest there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't know how long I'm going to go. You know, I, my plan was to do just a couple more years in the world tour until, you know, we wanted to start a family. And um, I was, I was only going to maybe do, you know, two or three more years in the world tour tops. Uh, and even with the pandemic, how much fun I've had and realizing that I can be based at home and go off for these awesome adventures So that's where we end this podcast. We missed the last few minutes wrapping things up due to some technical difficulties. So as we didn't get to it on the recording, I'd just like to thank Pete again for making the time to share his story in such a candid fashion. As a final footnote, we did record this before Unbound Gravel last month, where Pete ended up coming third behind a couple other former Pro Tour riders, Ian Boswell and Lawrence Tendam. He also referenced his attempt at the Cocopelli Trail fastest known time, and he'd not made the time public when we recorded. He since has, again, lowering the record to 10 hours and 24 minutes. So his season's definitely off to a great start. 